Okay. There we go. Technology is a wonderful thing. <laughs> like I was saying, thanks for coming to uh, this first Sunday of Advent. And uh, I don't know about you, but, you know, this year has just not flown by at all. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, this is my favorite time of year. Um, and it seems like I've been waiting for it for a long, long long time. Uh, but it's finally here. Christmas season is upon us, and I, for one, am overjoyed and can't wait to spend Advent with y'all. So we're starting a new Advent series uh, today. It's entitled, Emmanuel, God's Promise to a Weary World. As many of you remember, the word Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. And this is really the heart of Christianity, this belief that God did not think it was fitting for him to stay in heaven, but instead of keeping us at arm's length, he came down, he made himself low so that he could dwell with us. And this, this is a huge topic, and we can't, honestly, we can't possibly even touch it in four sermons. I mean, arguably the last 2,000 years of Christian theology is all about this, what it means that Jesus came as God to dwell with us. Um, but Ryan and I are going to do our best. Um, so if you have any questions uh, about Advent or something that we left out, just email them to me. And Ryan and I will try to answer them either in the sermon or in the devotional that he mentioned uh, that's coming up. And we hope uh, that God will use this series to deepen your faith. So today, I'll introduce us to the prophecy of Emmanuel in the Old Testament. And then over the next few weeks, Ryan will draw out more of the meaning of this mind-blowing concept that God is with us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day, this wonderful Advent Sunday. This Sunday that you have given us to slow down and focus on you and the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful news that you are with us. It's a privilege, Father, that you've called each of us here to listen to your word. I ask, Lord, that as I preach, you be very present in this room. Guide my thoughts, Lord. Help me speak your truth. Open our eyes, Lord, to see your beauty and give us ears to hear. Quicken our hearts, Lord, that they might beat in unison with yours, Holy Spirit, illumine us to the teaching of our glorious Savior Jesus, our true prophet, our great high priest, our mighty king, our Emmanuel. It is in your name, sweet Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So Ryan read part of the sermon text that we have today to us already, so I won't read it again, but let's set the stage just a little bit. Okay, this is a prophecy that's given to Ahaz. Uh, it's about 700 years before Jesus' birth. Um, and 
It's actually the first time that we hear Emmanuel. There are only three times in the entirety of Scripture that we hear Emmanuel here, and then later on in chapter 8 of Isaiah, and then all the way to Matthew chapter 1. Um, and you might think it's odd and say, hey, wait a minute. If something's only mentioned three times, why are we making such a big deal about it? And, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I mean, the answer is that even though it's only explicitly mentioned three times, this actually undergirds the entire Christian understanding of the world. This is the framework that we work through. And so, maybe we need a little context to kind of get this a bit better. So we're going to back up a little bit. Um, So we are right now at 700 BC. Um, We're actually going to back up a lot. We're going to back up all the way to Genesis chapter 3. So the story thus far, Genesis chapter 3, you probably know quite well. God created everything. He set Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything was perfect, and then Satan came. Satan showed up in the form of a servant, serpent, not a servant. <laughs> and he tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God's commands. And then the whole world comes under a curse, and you know it's what we call the fall. And ultimately, God sends Adam and Eve outside of the garden. But before he does, he gives them a message of hope. Theologians call this the, uh, the proto-evangelion, you know, if you want uh, good theological jargon. Uh, it means the first gospel. And it's in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Things were broken, but they weren't always going to be so. God was sending somebody to make things right. For now, though, God's people were waiting. And then a little farther in the book, but you know, thousands of years later in history, we meet Abraham and Sarah, and we hear God tell them a little bit more about this person that's to come. He says in Genesis chapter 22, 18, that your offspring, in your offspring shall all nations be blessed. So not only is someone coming to right the wrongs, but he's also going to bless the entire world. But again, for now, the people were waiting. They didn't know when this was going to happen a little bit farther along in history, but another thousand years, we meet David. And um, in 2 Samuel 7, we're told that uh, God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we learn that Whoever God is sending is going to be king, and he's going to be king over everything forever. But again, for now, the people of God were waiting. 
So we fast forward another couple hundred years and we come to the time of Isaiah and Ahaz. And in the meantime, between Isaiah and Ahaz, the kingdom has split in two. And the northern ten tribes, they're usually called Israel from now on, um, are opposed to the southern two tribes, which are normally called Judah. And they're at war with each other. And we learn at the beginning of chapter 7 that Israel and Syria have made a pact together. And they said that we're going to go down and we're going to take over Judah and overthrow everything that they have going on down there. And Ahaz, when he hears about it, he and all of his people start just shaking with fear. They don't know how they're going to be delivered. Again, God's perfect plan seems to be disrupted. God's plan for a savior, and they need a savior badly. And things look dismal. And everybody's asking, when is God going to fulfill this promise that he's made? He's made it several times times, time and again, he's made the promise that he is going to come, he is going to save us, he is going to put things right, and it hasn't manifested. When will the Savior come? I mean, can you feel their longing? It's been thousands of years. Can you feel it? I can. You know, it seems... So much of our lives are seasons of waiting too. And, you know, we wait for God to act. And he seems slow. You know, we're in a pandemic and we're waiting for God to bring healing. And it seems slow. And our world just seems to be a little bit off kilter. And we are waiting for God to come back and put it right. We are waiting for our Savior Jesus to come back. And still we're waiting. And the question then becomes, well, how do we wait when waiting seems so long? You know, we talked before about uh, a few sermons back about the Christian life being a marathon, but part of the Christian life is just waiting for God. So how do we wait? So let's return to the passage just... uh, a little bit, and we'll see what God answers. So, now word of the alliance, like I said, has come to Ahaz. He's shaking with fear. And God responds to this by sending Isaiah to him. And he sends Isaiah to Ahaz to remind him of this promise, to remind him of the promise that he is ready to act, that he will save them, that nothing that Syria, nothing that northern Israel can do can stand because God is the faithful one who's going to save. And just before this passage, he ends by telling Ahaz, Stand firm in faith. If you don't stand firm in faith, then you're not going to stand again. So how does Ahaz respond to that? 
So let's read it again, starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now God knew that Ahaz and his people were weak in faith and he knew that it was going to be hard to believe that they were safe and that God had everything in his control. So he offers to bolster Ahaz's faith. He offers to bolster the faith of his people. And he says he's going to do it by performing a sign, a miracle, anything, anything that they name, anything that Ahaz names, he would do it. And Ahaz turns the Lord down. And if I had been there, I think I would have been like, uh, you know, Ahaz, I had another answer all ready to go. Um, but you blew it. Now, on the surface, I mean, we ask, you know, what's wrong with Ahaz's answer? I mean, it, it seems on its face that Ahaz gives, you know, God an answer from a stance of faith, you know? It's like he's saying, no, no, you don't need to prove yourself, God. I trust you. I believe. And Ahaz is even quoting scripture at this point. You know, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. You know, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And, you know, this is also the same answer that Jesus gave Satan when he was being tempted in the desert. So, why is it then that Ahaz's answer seems to enrage Isaiah and weary God? Well, again, it can help to have a a little bit of context and we can gain some insight into the person that Ahaz was by reading the story of his reign in the Bible. You know, it's covered in uh, 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. And the picture that we get isn't a flattering one at all. We discover that he was a very, very evil man. And for the sake of time, I won't go into his life in detail, but he was the type of man that would sacrifice babies. He was an evil man. And so while the answer that he gave was pulled from Scripture, he wasn't uttering it out of faith. He wasn't a pillar of faith. He didn't even have an ounce of faith. In fact... He was wholly, wholly apart from God. He didn't think that God was trustworthy and he didn't want to put his faith in an intangible thing, something that he couldn't control. He didn't want to put his faith in the Lord even though the Lord said that he could save him. No, he had something else in mind. He had an alliance with the king of Assyria. And he didn't want to have to trust God. He wanted to be able to control the outcome himself. And we read in his life that this is exactly what he did. That instead of trusting God for salvation, 
he went and he made a deal with the king of Assyria. Trusting that the king of Assyria would come to his rescue when the northern Israel and Syria would attack him. And the question is, do we do that? Not exactly, of course. I mean, I mean, we're not in his position. We're not being attacked by hostile forces. But do we have a promised Savior, but we decide not to ask him for help? Do we decide that it's easier to put our trust in more tangible things rather than the Savior that we, can, that we can't see? Easier not to ask him to bolster our faith. Or maybe, maybe we're just impatient. We don't want to wait for our Lord to provide for us. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is yes, we all stumble in this way. God has promised that we will be whole and new and instead of going to him as his children, like Ahaz, we say, no, thank you, I have another way to solve my problem. This is what we call having a functional savior. Those things other than God that we look to to make us secure, they become our functional savior. And when we have them, we're on dangerous ground. As we'll see with Ahaz. So how does God respond to the king? So let's read it again in, starting in verse 13. And he said then... O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you, may, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, you, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God's response to Ahaz kind of catches us a little off guard. It seems odd to respond this way to his lack of faith, especially since we're used to reading it as a happy Christmas text about the wonderful prophecy of the Savior. And to be clear, it is. But it's also a rebuke. It's a rebuke to Ahaz. God is telling Ahaz, since you won't actually ask for the sign, the sign that I told you to ask for, since you don't have any faith, since you don't want any, I'm going to double down on the promises that I've already made. That's what I'm going to give you. You believe that the savior of God's people is going to be Assyria, Ahaz, but Assyria isn't going to save you. The actual savior, he is coming though. And he is coming as king. And after he says this, it's too long to read right now. I encourage you to read it at home, though. Um, he uses the next chapter and a half to explain exactly why it is that Assyria isn't going to save them. Because Assyria does save them from northern Israel and from Syria, and then Assyria turns on them and starts to consume the kingdom of Judah. And you know, we can kind of use this as a case study a little bit of what, 
what happens when we have functional saviors. We trust in them too much and ultimately they are going to fail us. And if they don't fail us just by being weak and improper saviors, they're going to fail us because they turn on us and lead us away from God. But there is the flip side to this prophecy. You know, the person of faith that hears this, those of us that trust in the Lord, it's a wonderful balm for our disquieted souls, both then and now. God promised again and again that he would send somebody to put everything right. Somebody was coming that would lead the nation back to God, that would lead all nations back to God. Someone was coming to make blessings flow as far as the curse is found. But the identity of that person had always been a mystery. It had a huge question mark over it. And whether a man could actually do it had a huge question mark over that too. Because again and again, they saw men that they thought were their saviors fail. But now he gives the same prophecy, the same prophecy, but with what seems at first kind of scanty on the details. You know, it's much shorter than any of the other prophecies that he gives. And the only thing he says is that the person that's coming is going to be born of a virgin and would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, why is this important? This is important because it's building on all of the other promises that God has already made. All of the other promises of the Savior feed into this. And until now, the person was thought to be simply a man. The son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of David, but a man. And now God has revealed that this, <laughs> this man would be born of a virgin, which in and of itself makes him unique and somebody that you can point to. I mean, that doesn't happen. And whatever fulfillment of a prophecy there was, sorry, lost my place. Um, up until now also, whatever fulfillment there was to a prophecy, um, there's always what the theologians would call the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. Okay, so the near fulfillment is usually kind of an incomplete fulfillment of what's been said, and then the far fulfillment is usually seen as being fulfilled only in Jesus. So you see this a lot when um, God is speaking to David in 2 Samuel 7, and he gives him a prophecy about the coming king that would be his son, that would reign on the throne forever. And the near fulfillment was Solomon, who reigned on David's throne, and he was a king of peace for most of his life. But he fell. And it turns out that he was not actually the king that was being talked about. The thing is about this prophecy, though, that Isaiah has given us, is that because he was born of a virgin, I... There's nobody around that could fulfill this. Not then. You know, rivers of ink have flowed out of pens 
of people trying to find some candidate, but they all fail. They're, the person prophesied here is so unique that it can only be one person. There can't be any sort of near fulfillment to it. But further, he would be called God with us. Whoever this man turned out to be, he would be so great that people, when seeing him, would say that he was God. He would be fully God and fully man. And this was immensely comforting to the people in Isaiah's day because, I mean, listen to Isaiah's words in chapter 8, verse 10. As, you know, he's contemplating the onslaught of Assyria. And he says, Take counsel together, but it will, not, it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us, for Emmanuel. It was so comforting to him to know that his God was coming. So what about us? You know, it's, it's great to think about Isaiah and the people in his day, but what about us? Now that we have this prophecy, what does it mean? What does it mean that God was sending Emmanuel to them, to us? What difference does it make? Well, frankly, we don't come to this text like the people of Isaiah's day. We come to this text, well, they came to the text with still 700 years left to wait before the birth of Jesus. We come to the text on the other side of the cross. We come to the text with 2,700 years of history We know exactly who the text is talking about. Jesus is the son Isaiah prophesied about. But what does it mean that Jesus is the incarnation of God come to dwell with us? How does knowing Jesus as Emmanuel help us in our times of waiting? What comfort can we get from it? Well, Like I said at the start, Christians have been trying to plumb the depths of this truth for thousands of years, and we still haven't reached the bottom, and we never will. It's too big. However, Isaiah makes another great pronouncement right after he's contemplating the assault of Assyria. He makes another great announcement about the coming Messiah, about who this Emmanuel will be, and I'll close with it and some some thoughts about it. It comes from Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Can we put that up on the screen? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the days of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, battle tumult. It's a hard sentence to say. 
and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I mean, Jesus is the light of the world. It's right there. That he is the light that has shone upon us. And we just sang a wonderful song. A, you know, let all mortal flesh keep silence. It has a dirge-like quality to it that it's really good for preparing your souls for worship. Um, but there's an amazing line in it, in that third verse. And it pictures Jesus as the light of light coming down to the earth. And as he comes, what do the shadows do? What does darkness do in that song? It melts away. Like, it can't stand to be in its presence. And that's immensely comforting to us. That right there is where we get the power to wait because we know that we have Jesus with us. He has bound us to himself by the Holy Spirit. We are in his presence and darkness can't touch us. He's our wonderful counselor and he knows what it means to be human and is ready to give any counsel that we that we need. He is mighty God and upholds the universe by the word of his power and he is one with the everlasting father. He is the father in some sense. And in him we have life eternal. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. It's hard to see that at the moment. You know, when we are standing here in our own little world, it is hard to see that Jesus is on the throne controlling everything. And the thing is, while it's hard to see in the moment, like I said before, we have 2,700 years of history since this to look. What has happened with the church in the past 2,000 years? It's grown. It hasn't gotten smaller. It's gotten huge. It went from 11 guys to now current count is 2.5 billion. That's a monumental increase. Jesus is spreading his dominion over the world. And though we don't see it in our day-to-day lives, we do see his effects on history. But still, we're waiting. Why are we waiting? Well, we're waiting because we know that the world isn't what it should be. It's still broken. It still needs healing. We still long for our Savior to come back. We still long for him to come back and dwell with us bodily. But we can wait, and we can wait well, because we know that He was the fulfillment to the promise in Isaiah's day. 
And everything that God has brought to pass has been fulfilled in Jesus already. And therefore, everything that God has said is going to happen, our reuniting with him is going to happen as well. Let us pray.